0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay. I'm one of the producers on the show. Today, we're going to one of the weirder forums for intellectual debate Twitch, the online streaming platform that's mostly used for watching other people play video games, but has also become a kind of uncomfortable host of political argument. We made this episode after a guy who goes by the online name Destiny took on Marxist scholar Richard Wolff in a capitalism versus socialism debate. It was billed as the battle of the century for the terminally online. Destiny refers to himself as an omniliberal. He's not a right winger, more of a Biden boosting type, but his centrism doesn't mean that he's nice and inoffensive. He's been banned from Twitch repeatedly over the years, and since this episode came out, he has been banned permanently, apparently, this time. Twitch says that that ban is for hateful conduct. That could be down to any number of things. He's tweeted out the N-word, he's said some transphobic stuff, he's been streaming with an out-and-out white nationalist at one point. Either way, he's now streaming on YouTube these days instead. But that's kind of the culture of being an independent content creator these days, especially in the political space. If you say wild things and start these inane beefs, you're gonna grow your audience. And Destiny himself is super candid about that in this episode. We don't just talk to Destiny, though. We're also diving into the whole realm of Twitch streamers, so we can explore that full buffet of intellectual streaming content on offer. Maybe put air quotes around the word intellectual there this is part of this week's theme the politics of tech and techno utopias we're digging up episodes from our catalog to show you some of our best stuff it's going to be a different theme each week until we relaunch the show with a new season on september 18th if you like what you hear on new books network with us and darts and letters do us a solid and find darts and letters in your podcast app and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss it when we do relaunch For now, though, from May 2021, here's The Revolution Will Not Be Streamed.
2: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddock. Darts and Letters is a left podcast about public intellectuals, populism, and the politics of academia. We love ideas, but we hate snob culture. I wonder if you have that same mental illness I do, that internet brain disease that just keeps you doom scrolling. I'm not sure why I do it, but I do. And if you do too, you might have just seen the same thing I did. It was a couple of weeks ago. It was hosted by the Surfs, And this event was billed the biggest event of the history of the terminally online. It was a debate. A debate between socialism and capitalism. On the left side of your screen, you saw economist Richard Wolff. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and the New York Times Magazine once called him, America's most prominent Marxist economist. As you might expect, Professor Wolf was arguing for socialism. On the right side of your screen, Steve Bunnell II, better known as Destiny. He is a gamer bro turned twitch intellectual, or pseudo-intellectual, depending on how you see things. But Destiny has basically created a new space of political discourse. He's moved a lot of gamers into mainstream politics, and with them, he's brought an intense and irreverent style of online debate. Destiny ultimately is a liberal. He's made a name for himself by owning alt-right trolls, but he's no leftist. So there he was, debating the side of capitalism.
3: So I'm very glad that you've acknowledged that Marx, in, in through his labor uh, theory value analysis, was absolutely flawed and was an absolute failure. I'm glad that you've acknowledged that the way I have not
0: acknowledged. You're making this stuff up.
3: I've
1: never acknowledged anything of the work of this Destiny. Story.
2: lodged some cheap shots about socialism failing and descending into violence. Wolf called it a laughable caricature, but then Destiny retorted, asking for Wolf's definition. And Wolf gave this detailed explanation of different schools of socialist thought. From the social democrats who still believe in markets, to old school socialists who want the big state to nationalize basically everything, to a more organic, smaller, worker-run, co-op sort of model. If your audience members don't know about
1: this, that's because you live in a society that doesn't tell you about this, even though it's public knowledge to anyone interested in finding out. Markets
2: have nothing to do with- But for Destiny, this was too slippery, too amorphous. He rolled his eyes, slapped his face, and dismissed Wolf. Now, I must admit, I'm biased, so admittedly, I would say that Destiny was out of his element. He just seemed unwilling to accept nuance. He wanted these neat terms so that he could score clear argumentative victories.
3: Socialism feels like this, like, this very amorphous, ever-transforming idea of what it actually is,
2: such that I don't even know why we use the word anymore. But I'll be honest with you, Wolf did not look good either. Wolf went into full lecture mode, he hogged the clock, and he rarely engaged with Destiny's questions. So at the end of the day, Wolf looked kind of condescending. It was over 90 minutes of nothing. A total disaster. The Mondragon Federation of
3: Co-ops exists
2: under a capitalist framework. Could
0: I finish, or do you need to tell me about the Mondragon Corporation? I
2: i didn't mean to interrupt your lecture. I'm sorry. Continue. Sure you did. Come on. Who you think you're kidding? It got us thinking here at Darts and Letters. Why did this even happen? It seems like there's this emerging political culture on Twitch and it's butting up against mainstream politics. A politics that is dominated by esteemed academic researchers, policy wonks, and credentialed journalists. But destiny is none of those things. So is this new space, Twitch, creating a new rich intellectual life? Or is it just more internet brain disease? And what does it mean that gamers are becoming a new political commentariat? You'll hear from the man himself, Steve Bennell II, better known as Destiny.
3: Online, the goal is to squash out other ideologies, increase your own popularity, increase the popularity of your ideology,
2: and then you do that by making other people look bad or dumb. Then, Trevor Strunk. He is host of the gaming podcast, No Cartridge. For my money, Trevor is one of the most astute analysts of the politics of video games. He'll have more on Twitch debate
1: culture and its limits. For those kind of like debate things, you kind of need a them and us. You need to figure out who the people you disagree with are and like why you disagree with them and why it's important that they are the ones you disagree with.
2: But the politics of video games isn't just about debating politics. It's about the games themselves and the communities they create. MIT sociologist T.L. Taylor tells us the wider story of Twitch and what the politics of video games really means.
4: Gaming has benefited too much and wrongly from being seen as this fun, air quotes, apolitical leisure space. When actually, the way I put it is, gaming is the place where politics comes at you sideways. Plus, Tanya De Pass,
2: better known as Cipher of Tear, she's fighting to diversify Twitch and the games themselves.
5: You can't set a game in a war-torn country or have war or strife be the central way in which your game functions and then go, oh, no politics though. You can't do that.
2: For a certain kind of person, Destiny need no introduction. But actually, I did need an introduction. My little brother explained him to me. Destiny is this phenomenon for the political gamer crowd. He makes a living having these high-profile, high-octane debates, like the one he had with Richard Wolf. I thought it was pretty disappointing. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, me too. I'll tell you why, but, but I'm curious to hear why you thought it was disappointing. Some people are really good at um, kind of
3: like going back and forth on a conversation, and other people kind of have like things that they want to talk about. It's pretty rare sometimes to run into people that can like hear what you're saying, take it, digest it and then like create an answer back that kind of responds to your prompt. It feels like a lot of people kind of have talking points that they wanna run through instead sometimes. And it definitely, I was definitely getting the vibe that, that Wolf was more on the like, this is kind of what I talk about and this is what I'm gonna continue to say. And then that was kind of the majority of the conversation is what it felt like to me, I guess. Like if I look back on the conversation, I don't really think we talked about almost anything like substance. Like it was more, you know, we yeah. were kind of like missing each other on every.
2: Yeah. You know, that's exactly what I thought. It was pretty lame from my perspective. I, I think he went into lecture mode and I I actually appreciated some of the content, but it did feel like the whole time you were talking past each other. What were people's perceptions and takeaways, you know, and all the sort of post-game and like hand-wringing afterwards?
3: I think it was the perfect type of conversation for each side to feel like they had a good takeaway. (laughs) So people that were in favor of me going into it said that, um, you know, like Wolf wouldn't really commit to any Uh, questions and answers that he was kind of like weaseling around everywhere that he didn't respond to anything well enough that his position was kind of absurd or indefensible he was essentially saying liberals or socialists etc and then people the opposite to me said that i didn't have the necessary educational background to engage with the conversation that i just wasn't understanding wolf's questions because i was too busy trying to trap him using a debate tactic or that Wolf was giving really good answers and I just wasn't listening because I was too keen on getting a debate on or whatever. So yeah, there was like, it was the perfect horribleness for both sides to take what they wanted from it,
2: basically. I feel like I'm kind of sympathetic to like parts of both because I I do think you had like kind of a gotcha mentality at times where you were asking for very precise definitions, which I totally like understand because it was so... Like I think the words you used were like amorphous in the way that he talked about it. Mm -hmm. But in his defense, he's talking about a very like diverse, contested and sort of like historically contingent set of ideas. And it seemed to me like you were uncomfortable with like the nuance of figuring out like how do people perceive of socialism.
3: Maybe I should have just been more clear with this. The reason why I have problems with the amorphous stuff, I wouldn't normally. Like, if you're just a whatever person, I'd be like, okay, sure, if you consider socialism, that's fine. The problem that I have is that wolf types and and the people that follow him will relentlessly shit on people using labels. Like, oh, you're a liberal? (laughs) What a worthless fucking idiot. You might as well be a Nazi, you stupid fucking liberal. (laughs) What a dumb fuck liberal. Not cool, like a socialist. But then, like, when I talk to, like, the daddy of all socialism on the internet, and he's like, oh, well, you know, some liberals will basically be socialists. Like, wait, what the fuck? Like, okay, (laughs) because the first definition that he gave me is essentially a social democrat, right? Which isn't... Really, a social, nobody really thinks of that as a socialist. Like, oh, that's where you have private enterprise, but lots of government intervention. It's like, what? Okay, that's not really, I don't know why you would consider that socialist. So that's kind of the thing that irritated me is that, but maybe I should have been more clear about that. I was like, well, listen, the problem that I have with how fluid all these labels you're using are, is that like, it seems that socialists shouldn't be attacking liberals and because there's a lot of liberals that would just consider themselves to be socialists.
2: I, I think some might. I mean, social people call themselves social democrats, or and, and that's like a very well established like set of ideas. So, in Wolf's defense, I think I think you could still sort of get away with calling yourself a socialist. Now, I happen to agree with you, and this, like his sort of two and three is what more I would subscribe to as my definition of socialism. Yeah. But I think where this gets kind of tricky for me is like why ask for the sort of definitional purity? Because I can put to you that the U.S. isn't even a capitalist country. Mm -hmm. And socialists make this case, you know, massive state intervention, state subsidies, protectionism, research infrastructure, major economies that are developed by state enterprise. And so if you debate a libertarian, they're going to say, well, that's not actually capitalism even. In some sort of strict definitional grounds, they might be right. But then you get into this absurd thing where there's like, there is no socialism, there is no capitalism. The problem that I have is that There's so much in the real world, there's so much
3: stigma, at least in the United States, and even across Europe, um, and especially across South America, related to the word socialism, that if you're going to consider liberal socialists, why not just like, why not at least just use the word like social democracy or something?
2: I wonder if it's just a question of framing, and like, it's just a stupid question, maybe. Like, what does it mean to say socialism versus capitalism when... You're talking about many different places, many different interpretations of that ideology. It just seems like there can be no resolution or real clear winner, that like something more focused would have helped. There's kind of like two questions that revolve
3: around this capitalism versus socialism thing, I think, there's a moral question and then there's an economic question. Those are like the interesting debate questions. But in order to get there, I think we need to have, um, uh, yeah, we we need to get like on the same page definitionally. I think. (laughs) Fair enough. Who do you think won? Um, I don't think that like any conversation happened. So I don't <laughs> like. I truly, it was truly like a waste of time. I don't. I don't know if there was like any winner. So typically, the way that I evaluate like a win is when I have a conversation with somebody after that conversation, I will just kind of like immerse myself in all of the social media related to the other person. So I might look at YouTube comments. I might look at 4chan posts. I might look at Twitter comments. I'll try to look at like different Twitch chats just to kind of see like the feeling I get and then see how the creators respond. I think based on the responses that I saw, I feel like I probably had a slight edge because his evasiveness looked, I think kind of bad to some people. But in terms of like an actual, like if I was to be like a debate judge, I just, I don't think we met on any point So it's hard to give anybody like a win. Like, oh, like Destiny was right on that. Or, oh, Wolf got him hard on that or whatever. It just seemed like we totally didn't connect on anything.
2: (laughs) We've got loads more with Destiny. We'll go through his full story from libertarian StarCraft shithead to foremost political streamer. He'll also give us his super honest appraisal of the Twitch intellectual culture.
3: Yeah, if you're looking for intellectualism on online political platforms, uh, that's going to be quite the search. (laughs)
2: Good luck. All that and more after the break. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But Like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. I must admit this is kind of a funny interview to do because um, I don't really know much about you or about the Twitch streaming universe or hadn't until really the last week or two. So I'm hoping you can kind of give me a little bit of an introduction into this world because Darts and Letters is really a show about intellectualism in all of its sort of strange places. And we're trying to discover uh, what the kind of Twitch political philosophical commentariat is like. So I'm really excited to talk to you.
3: Yeah, if you're looking for intellectualism on online political platforms, uh, that's going to be quite the search. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I come from a very combative online background. So yeah. I, I, I mean, it's a lot of fun for me. Now, when I got into politics, I wanted to, my goal initially was like, Hey, I think we can have better, more structured conversations that are more fact-based. That was my goal. But unfortunately that doesn't exist online. Nobody actually cares about that at all.
2: What do you mean? How is the intellectualism in these sort of Twitch, political streamer, YouTube blogger space? Uh, is it worth considering or is it just kind of a, a hellscape? It's not, there's nothing of value. Basically, the way that it works (laughs) is- You don't mean that, um, do you? I
3: absolutely mean that. (laughs) Well, there are very, very, very few exceptions, but the way that it works 99% of the time is like, if I see like a Twitter headline, I'll look at the Twitter headline and then I'll try to think of like, how does this fit into my ideology? And then boom, I've got like a 10 minute YouTube video. We could spin out any imaginary headline, um, like United States bombs India. Some totally random thing, right? If I read that and I'm a leftist or whatever, then maybe I read this and it's like, uh, oh, well, now I have a 2 minute video. So here we see today that the United States is engaging in more of its imperialistic actions, just like it did with the CIA in South America, just like it has done in Iraq and Syria. And here we go, more US, blah, 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 And I get spent off a whole, just reading the headline, which is what they do. They don't ever, they'll never read the article. They never engage critically with anything. Yeah, I always, I tell my audience relentlessly that like, if you just read the articles that other influencers or streamers or YouTubers talk about, um, you're already more informed than like over half of the people that are doing the reporting like literally and it's not an exaggeration most people don't even read the articles themselves yeah it's an unbelievable world it's unreal out there on the in the political commentary scene
2: that's so disheartening though because i would have thought you know especially in the kind of place that you're inhabiting where we're talking about being on a stream for hours on end that it would open up an opportunity for having like a deeper conversation rather than just short snappy you know kind of youtube video take on something you haven't read like doesn't it open up space for that it's I
3: think so right <laughs> it absolutely doesn't i just think that the media environments that we have are um people like to blame the media and everything for everything but the media is honestly just a reflection of what most people want to see um and the the criticisms of towards like media or politicians i think are really unfair and really unfounded i think that they would look a lot different if the population was a lot different You know, given the opportunity to engage on platforms with long-form responsible content, nobody really cares. But given the opportunity to engage with Alex Jones-like figures, everybody cares. Politics is entertainment for most people. And most of these issues are entertainment for most people. And most people that engage with these are like suburban white people that at the end of the day really don't care what happens one way or another. That's why you see people that will like militantly fight for things like Medicare for all and 15-hour minimum wage, and they don't want any compromise or anything in the middle. Because at the end of the day, whether or not any of these issues pass doesn't really affect any of these people that don't actually care. So like compromise positions are unthinkable You know, you can make people so mad by pointing out that like, hey, you know, I understand the 15 an hour isn't happening now, but like 12 an hour would help a lot of people. And it's like, no, you know, better than nothing until we get what we want. And it's like, okay, well,
2: I mean, you're not making the sacrifice. So I guess it's easy for you to say that. So when you engage in just today, I watched like two and a half hours of you debating some college conservatives, you know, why do it then? Is it not for political aims? Why do you do it?
3: I mean, on one end, it's how I make my living, and I think I'm fairly decent at it. On another end, I think it helps me hopefully push back against some of the harmful ideologies on the, on the internet. Even if I think that the conversations are largely toxic, I like to think that I try to make them a little bit better. So I, I do put in a fair bit of research, you know, sometimes even on stream for the topics that we talk about. I try to ground some of these conversations a bit more in reality. And then I hope that people that listen to me get a little bit less radicalized. There's... Been a decent amount of writing, you know, in the New York Times and everything relating to the deradicalization of people on the right that I get credit for, which is fun. I think I've been deradicalizing a lot of people that get caught like into these very, very left-leaning spaces too. So I, hopefully, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just like a guy screaming into the abyss, I guess, but hopefully at the end of the day, it makes a little bit of a difference to some people
2: that listen. Do people write to you?
3: Yeah, I get a lot of those emails. That's how I, I yeah. hopefully I feel like I'm making a difference because people will write in and tell me stuff like that. Yeah.
2: Hmm. That's really interesting, because I feel like we're in this kind of cultural moment where a lot of people feel like debate has little utility you mm-hmm. know there there are so many years of research that you know talked about how we do motivated reasoning and logic and debate sort of moves no one that we have these kind of priors that we're so wedded to and and one of the things I always thought. And when people say stuff like that is, well, who's actually doing the debate? When you take someone like Jordan Peterson, like who's actually genuinely taking them on in a serious way? And so you seem mm-hmm. to be one of the few people that's doing it. So, so I guess to push back against that wider conversation, that debate doesn't work. Does it work or who does it work for when you're doing it? Debate
3: doesn't change the mind of the person you're debating, but it can change the mind of their fans. When you're talking about YouTubers or streamers, the relationships that people have with these content creators is very, very, very close. You identify a lot with your streamer or your YouTuber. And when they look dumb, you feel dumb. So if I have a debate with somebody and, it, and it, the appearance is that I'm like, you know, dancing on them or they're not like responding well or they look kind of dumb then what happens is is their fans start to feel dumb. and Mm. Nobody wants to see that happen ever. Nobody wants to feel like the guy they're following doesn't have all the answers or isn't correct on something. And when you start that process of discomfort, you can kind of like move those people away from those content creators or at least make them start to question things more. And then those people will gravitate towards newer ideas, basically, as a result of that.
2: That makes a lot of sense, yeah. What's been your kind of favorite debate that you've done with a right-winger?
3: These questions are so hard for me. I don't, almost none of my content is worth watching if you're looking at it from an academic point of view. My stuff is like, you want to laugh at something or turn something on to like have a lot of fun with. There is very, very, very little substance to any of the conversations I have. Like most people can't do like basic understanding of stats or they just lack fundamental information about anything they're talking about. Like, most people don't really know how the government works. Most people don't really know how our economy works. Most yep. people don't really... Most people don't know how anything works. <laughs> <They have laughs> very, 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 very strong opinions on everything. And maybe, 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 maybe once in a blue moon, we'll yeah. fight somebody that's at least armed with a sentence or two from an abstract of a study. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, people just, yeah, don't know anything. So, I mean, like, when you ask me for good conversations... Like, my conversations with Lauren Southern were pretty funny. I read her entire book. I dug through so much research for her cited economists and everything. I started reading up about immigration and, you know, the back and forth between David Card and Boras and all this stuff. About 10 minutes into that debate, I think she realized that I'd studied for it. And she completely and totally dropped the economics argument. (laughs) And we just talked about culture for an hour and a half. And it was just like, this is so stupid. You know? <laughs> People will always try to like bring you back to topics where yeah, there's less empirical foundation, less theoretical right. foundation. And they can just tell you about how they feel about things, which I think is probably one of my biggest strengths is that at the very least, I've, I hope that I've exposed it. Because left leaning people are trying to moralize everything Mm. instead of like arguing on the fact based ground that they have. Like, you don't have to like or love immigrants to acknowledge, you know, beneficial impacts they have on the economy. You don't have to like poor people to say that giving them access to healthcare literally makes the entire country better off. But for some reason, liberals or left leaning people just, they'll see all the fact-based ground immediately. And they'll just try to moralize it. And they're like, oh, well, like, you don't want to be a racist, right? You got to be a good person. It's like, wait, hold on. Why are you seeing the fact-based ground? Like, just fight there. Like, argue there? Like, the, the arguments are generally on your side. I don't know why you would just give that up immediately. And I think that's kind of how I became popular early on was that, I was hopefully able to expose that a lot of the right leaning people on the internet that will scream, you know, like my facts are more important than your feelings and blah, 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 are actually just as feelings driven as anybody on the left. Like they have some form of society that they want to defend and they feel very strongly about it. And at the end of the day, that's about all they have.
2: You said this sort of political stuff happened later for you in 2016, but your identity is like you're such a You know, a person who debates and I'm wondering if that was a part of kind of your early days with video games, maybe the online gaming, were you, were you like debating people online or what were you doing in the games? Just insulting people, basically. <laughs> um, I think I grew up a lot on um,
3: Battle.net, and you kind of lived and died by your ability to trash talk on those platforms. And I think that was probably what people knew me the best for in StarCraft II when I started to grow. Um, I was pretty good at the game. At points in my career, I could take a game off of anybody in the world. Um, I don't know. If I would win a series against them, but like I, I was like decent. Um, but people generally watched me because I was entertaining. They like the trash talking and everything was the big draw to my stream. And then I'd always had like kind of like peripheral interests. Like my stream was never 100 percent about gaming. Like we talk. about about like, you know, philosophical quandaries or different political things or like news and science or whatever. We, we wouldn't just be strictly video games. So I think that like the transition into doing a lot more heavy handed political stuff in 2016 was a little bit more natural than it seems. It wasn't just like I was playing Starcraft 2 one day and then we opened a press conference and it's like, oh, let's do politics, you know?
2: To the extent that you can kind of characterize the politics of these spaces. So what do you say, like battle.net? I don't even know what that is. Like some- Oh,
3: that was like kind of like the chat service kind of community service that um like StarCraft, Warcraft, Diablo that Blizzard had set up a long time ago.
2: And what are the politics? Or what were the politics of those spaces like when you were getting into them?
3: I'd say gamer bro politics are very like, I would define them as anti-SJW, is what I would say. I wouldn't say all the way socially conservative, but probably kind of in that direction. It really depends like issue to issue to issue. So like, for instance, like a gamer bro would never come out and say, like, I don't think gay people should be married, but they might defend the use of like the F slur.
2: Why do you think that is like that opposition to SJWs? Where does that come from? If I had to pick
3: probably one of the biggest reasons, I would say it's that online gaming spaces, especially in the past, tended to be dominated by kind of more affluent, white, cis, straight-ish men. And if you have a community full of people like that, basically the only intersection you're going to have with people that are pushing like progressive social values is going to be negative. It's going to be people mm-hmm. from the outside coming in and saying, hey, this behavior is problematic. Hey, you need to change your behavior and do this and blah, 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 So it's going to be all negative. So the initial reaction is going to be probably a rejection of these types of people, especially because they all come off as outsiders, you know, like the Indian
2: circassians of the world. You're saying like... When you actually come across people like this, they're scolding rather than being like part of the community itself. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And right now I'm loving a lot of blame on the gamer community. Um, on the other end, though, I would say that like a lot of it does come off as kind of scolding. And, you know, ironically enough, I think it's kind of hard sometimes for for white to straight dudes to kind of empathize with other people that might have struggles related to their identity. You know, as a white guy, I've never, I don't know what it's like to not be allowed to be a certain way or do a certain thing based on, you know, the color of your skin. It's just not an experience that I really have because, generally, you're considered like the default in society. You always have good representation everywhere. Nobody's usually attacking you for any identity related reasons. So that makes it really hard for that group of people to relate to other groups of people that might have those issues. But then on the flip side, you know, in a weird sense of cosmic irony, it's also hard to understand what it's like to be somebody that doesn't have the ability to empathize or, or hasn't empathized with those types of people because it it makes all the communication very harsh, unneededly. So, so I was very much like a gamer bro, like 10 years ago, 100% through and through. And I can remember like, in terms of being back there, one of the things that kept me from kind of making more transitions to more progressive outlooks is just a lot of people would attack me with things that just weren't true. So for instance, I don't believe I've ever been homophobic in my life such that I don't like gay people. Never. I've never had that experience ever. But I used to use and defend the use of the Epsler a lot because I guess like in my head and in kind of like gamer bro heads, it doesn't really seem like it ties in 100% with gay people. It doesn't Uh seem to be a thing like that. And, you know, rather than somebody, you know, having a discussion where it's like, hey, listen, it's possible to enable homophobia and spread it without even being homophobic yourself. It's possible that you might have an intention behind these words, but if we look at the context in which they're used and how they're used and where they come from and how they affect people, like, you know, rather than those types of conversations, you're just like, oh, you're homophobic, you're homophobic, you're homophobic. And it's like, well, no, I'm not. So I know I'm not. So why am I going to listen to anything that you say to me about, you know, what I should say when you don't even know the kind of person
2: I am? So at this time, when you're you're like full gamer bro, I've I've read in places you're also pretty libertarian, or you were pretty libertarian at the time. I read in particular that you went on a trip to Poland. Was it? Was that kind of a breaking? point in your libertarian politics?
3: No, I think I'd probably slowly transitioned out of that through the years. Mm. Yeah, when I was living in Poland for a few months, I, I just I had an experience where somebody used the F-slur and they, it was in the context of talking about a gay person. And I noticed that after they'd said it, that like this person was actually homophobic. Mm-hmm. I noticed that when I was around them, even though I used the F-slur casually a ton on stream and everything, I was really uncomfortable saying it around them. I was like, wait, this person actually hates gay people. And I feel kind of weird. Like, I wonder if I say, you know, the episode, I wonder if that guy thinks I hate gay people too. And it made me really uncomfortable. And I think in 2013, I think I published something on my website where I was like, listen, there's actually some words that I don't think I'm comfortable using publicly anymore because I don't know who's listening and who's going to take this as like some form of camaraderie, or if I'm going to be like empowering or enabling some views that I find abhorrent.
2: What do you think the draw is for the gamer bro or for you at the time to saying the F slur or the R slur or, you know, whatever the case may be, I, I take you at your word here. And I know that a lot of people use these kinds of words ironically, or like not fully uh embracing a homophobic agenda but just kind of like it's just part of the vernacular for whatever reason but i never totally understood why the two most things i could think of is that one you don't have that much firsthand experience
3: with people in these groups so it's hard sometimes to understand maybe how it affects them and then um uh the second part was i think that like when you when you enter any community and your goal is to like make fun of somebody or make, make somebody feel bad. You typically have to work with the language that they're using. So just like your buy-in to that community would typically be like an acceptance and usage of that vocabulary. If that's the insult that everybody uses, then like that's the one that's going to stick the hardest and then you end up saying it and then it just becomes part of your vocabulary. Yeah,
2: There's a real kind of like culture of like debate, argumentation, one-upsmanship that I see in your videos. Now I'm wondering where that, came from for you? Do you have like a background in like, you know, like high school debate or something? Or like when when, and why did you start doing this?
3: I don't know, I guess from an early age, I kind of always felt like the best way to kind of like test the veracity of my ideas was just arguing with people. Um, I always felt like if I argued sufficiently with enough people and nobody could present a good counter argument or resorted to like personal attacks, probably meant that whatever I thought was correct. And I think especially in the era of my life in high school, when I started to, I went to a Jesuit high school, I was very Catholic growing up and I kind of became an atheist through high school. And, you know, that, that process of kind of like testing new ideas against people was kind of important for establishing, you know, where I was at in my own ideological development, I guess.
2: Yeah. It's funny. Like I also was raised Catholic. I never like fully believed in it. But then all through uh, elementary school, high school, I would just spend like hours on hours, even through college, like debating people up till, you know, three at night debating the merits of capitalism. Or uh, Mm -hmm. I had an objectivist friend and we would just go debating libertarianism so long. But at, at a certain point, like, you know, in the academic world, it's kind of inculcated out of you in a sense. The like, the real, real like intense sort of one-upsmanship is seeds ground to the sort of collegiate like, oh yes, you know, that's good. I think I will problematize, you know, by saying this, and there's all these sort of niceties. And now I feel like the direction of like conversation has gone to a point, point. maybe this is partly a, a, a matter of academia, but also partly a matter of me being in Canada. There's a hesitation to just like go at the jugular. Whereas it seems to me on, on Twitch streams, it's quite the opposite. Like going for the jugular is kind of encouraged, right? And then, you know, in the chat, people go, yeah, yeah, you got him or whatever. Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it totally depends on what your goal is
3: for a conversation. I, I imagine in an academic world, your goal is to kind of like build upon existing knowledge and to kind of further that for all parties involved. And yeah. on the online world, the goal is to just win a conversation <laughs> to make the other person look bad and to spread your ideology, right? So it's two very different um in academia, I would imagine, or it should be the case, that every academic is trying to build towards the common goal of furthering the you know, breadth and depth of human knowledge. But online, the goal is to squash out other ideologies, increase your own popularity, increase the popularity of your ideology, and then you do that by making other people look bad or dumb.
2: That was Steve Bunnell II, better known as Destiny. You can find his videos on Twitch and on YouTube Plus, there is an extended, uncut version of this interview on our Patreon. We talk about lots more, and it is at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Trevor Strunk is an English PhD turned game critic. His work brings together literary analysis and marxist politics to the study of video games he's host of the excellent podcast no cartridge i called him to get his take on the debate between destiny and richard wolf but we also talked about the much wider politics of video games
1: literature was just what i was always pretty good at like literary analysis so i just kind of you know in the end of high school i was that was kind of the thing i was best at and then i carried that through to college and just kept going it was good enough to get the phd while i was getting the phd one of the things you always start thinking about because you start hearing about this like you know l- lack of jobs is that you know you, you want to market yourself right so i kind of started like casting about for stuff that i would be like interested in and i had like a really long break in video games i didn't really like playing video games from like i don't know like i i, I would play rpgs with my buddy emerson all the time, but that was basically just an excuse for us to chat. Like, you know, something in the background that neither of us had to pay too much attention to. We'd play like Final Fantasy 12 or whatever. But I would say I didn't seriously play video games between like my junior year of high school and probably when I was like in my, probably when I first had my my first kid. And like, I had this Xbox 360 that my cousin's husband bought me as a wedding shower gift. I would play them periodically. But when I had my first kid, I found that I didn't have time to focus on anything except for like 15 minutes at a time because it would be between her naps and my brain was just shot. So I picked up Skyrim and just played that and found I loved it. Kind of kept up with games played Dark Souls, which really uh, clicked for me That's uh, and just kind of like became sort of a part of my life in the background. And I started thinking like, you know, maybe, maybe this is a market that I can get into. And digital humanities in English is like not, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Not a lot of it is on video games. I'll say that. That's the that's the kind way of saying it. There's like some super cool stuff about archives, about like the way people are thinking about like I don't know transmission or communication and stuff like that. But the the, the sort of discourse around video games is like barren. And so I, I just started writing about video games, and I started my Patreon just kind of as a little thing where I was like, hey, you know, maybe you wanna help me figure out like what the politics around video games are. It's kind of interesting. And then the podcast came from that and it just kind of rolled from there. So
2: you talked a little bit there about academia and like the dearth of literature on games. I mean, game studies is a thing. I mean, yeah, it is small and growing, but outside of academia, like in the online space, the online world, are there people doing similar things as you are in terms of looking at the politics of video games,
1: I think like, you know, I would say if there's anything unique about my approach, it's the the sort of like consistency of of approach, or if you wanted to say that in a way that wasn't very complimentary, sort of the sameness, of the, the, the 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 oppressive sort of like consistency that I that I have, just hammering my head against the same problem, which is a, a specialty of mine. Maybe why I like video games. Yeah, no, I think there are a lot of people. I know she recently uh, stopped writing on video games, but uh, Dia Lucina is one of my favorite critics. She often will, will put video games and politics together. I feel like uh, Waypoint, which was the, the video game imprint on Vice for a while, now it's just Vice Games with only a few of the people who used to work there. There anymore. That was really interesting. um, And and they really approached it. I mean, and again, like did not come to the same conclusions as me all the time. Like definitely there were times I did not agree with what Waypoint put out, but always with the sort of like interesting approach. I think like a lot of the freelance writing online, often, you know, you'll find you'll find people getting bombarded by people who don't like it the whole Kotaku in action and Gamergate thing and whatever, like people are pretty high strung about politics and video games, especially if they think it's going to be like critical of the games they like. It's a world that's opening up slowly.
2: That's an encouraging thing to hear. You know, it's funny. It's a, it's a nice little parallel to the conversation I had last week with Dave Ziron about the left and the politics of sports. I'm curious about Twitch as a political space. I want to get your sense in this. It, it, it factors into the book too, but like I'm sure there are plenty of sort of technical or material reasons why Twitch is becoming more than just games and is becoming a, a platform where political commentary is happening. But like, what is it about the culture of that space? Why have the gamers become like a kind of
1: political commentariat, or at
2: least some of them have with high profiles?
1: I mean, for a lot of people, it's a marketing decision. Uh, Twitch... If you want to make partner on Twitch, right? Like there is like a graduated sort of like um, monetization scheme on Twitch. Let's say scheme, but not in a mean way. Like it's it's pretty standard for, for like content creation. They give you sort of a bigger piece of the pie as you get bigger, at least sort of like more visibility, more sort of like customization, stuff like that. So the first thing you can do is become like... I forget what it, what the first one is like a contributor or something like that. I mean, even my sort of like piddling channel got that you, it, it's like minimum things. They just want to see that you're going to be on there, you know, more than once and then let your account die. The next thing up is partner and partner is actually very hard to get. You need to have like 75 average viewers. You need to like have like 150 hours in a certain period of time. And one of the things that I, I, I saw a friend of mine, um, uh, my friend Kay, who streams at real mama Eagle, she. She pointed out that like she got oh, she didn't point out she she screenshotted her email saying she got partner and she was super excited. You know, good for her. I don't I don't take anything away from her for that. But the, the copy from Twitch was super interesting because it said like, yeah, you know, you're a, you're a partner, which means like you do not just gaming, but you're like you do all sorts of different stuff. Like you talk to people, you're like you're doing hangouts, maybe you do karaoke like Twitch really wants like they are super, super encouraging people to do more. Politics is an easy one. Like, everyone feels like they have a say in politics. I'm not the kind of person who likes to draw things back to Gamergate. Like, this is, like, not a thing I like to do. I think I think Gamergate is a little overblown as a thing. I feel like people lean on it a lot to explain away sort of nascent cultural conservatism. But I will say Gamergate got everyone sort of in the gaming sphere realizing that, oh, hey, my opinions can be political, too. And then also you... Um, <laughs> Are given a platform that, you know, and this is, you know, YouTube shows us with the algorithm, but also, I mean, it's just easier to get people to watch you if you're a reactionary conservative, because I I don't know why it just is. I'm I'm sure we can figure out why, but it it seems to be that way that like that space just opens up politics is an easy way to diversify. And all of a sudden the opinions they have are sort of like these vague kind of like pro free speech, anti-woke, like libertarian to alt-right you know range of, of ideas
2: is that the dominant culture certainly I get the sense of that but I, I hope that it's that it's diversified beyond that I don't know what is the culture there politically in twitch twitch game twitch game commentary at
1: a <laughs> very subculture I guess but <laughs> yeah no for sure um, I feel like there's a way that there's a way that that's become the narrative about it. Like specifically because a lot of journalists ended up being attacked by GamerGate and then still attacked by people like Colin. uh, Colin Moriarty is someone who will often, uh, in in sort of like the conservative gaming world, will often call down people on your head if you (laughs) tweet the wrong thing. Like you know there are people like that out there and they're very vocal, right? However, you know there are also people who are like Destiny, someone who's like this. People like Vouch, who sort of does games and does a lot of political commentary. A lot of the bread tubers like you know, your H bomber guys or your um, contra points or whatever, like Hassan. Oh yeah. Hassan Piker for sure. Yeah. I've, I've been on his stream. Yeah. He's, he's great. I think Hassan's the best version of this, to be honest with you, but like, you know, all those people have stuff that I agree with and stuff I don't agree with. And it's easy when they're closer to your political perspective to be like, huh? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really like this. Like, this is, this is slightly different than my perspective, as opposed to viewing them as a growing block of sort of like, you know, more progressive speech than, you know, the, the, the extreme, like your Ben Shapiro's or whatever. Right. Like, so, I mean, that group is growing and growing in kind of an interesting way. It's, I think the thing to that kind of, it doesn't worry me, but it's, it's, fascinating to watch and it'll be really really interesting to watch how it how it moves is how that group is responding to marketization and like you know the the need to get more eyeballs on the thing vaush and destiny are like the perfect examples of this because hassan is is an interesting case because he has like the the young turks brand and and the young turks are are sort of like an already codified brand so it was a little easier that way same with uh, matt chrisman and chapo there's like a there's a brand there that kind of like lends them some eyeballs But like, and not that that takes away from their stuff, but it makes it a different dynamic. I think what's interesting, like looking at the Destiny, like Richard Wolf debate, that's like a weird one for me because it's not super substantive or interesting, but I can see why Destiny thought it was a good idea because it's totally going to get eyeballs on his channel. And so that kind of like minimization or like essentialization of politics down to, is this going to get eyeballs on my channel? Is... A real slippery slope to some like troubling politics.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to to do a bit of a deep dive on that on that debate. Did, did you watch the entirety of the debate or just the interminable clips of them kind of shouting at each other? Just the interminable clips. <laughs> just the interminable clips. <laughs> I similarly felt that it was not particularly productive in, in any way, shape or form. And it, it got me really thinking about the limits of debate, but also a very particular kind of debate genre, like a very bro-y kind of gotcha genre that didn't seem to port over well. Like, it didn't seem to serve the topic well.
1: No. And I think part of that's just because, like, part of that is because, and I think this this is part of Twitch, right, is that, like, there's something about Twitch, like, Tyler Blevins is getting rich, and he's just, like, this kid with, like, pink hair, like... And like, you know, he's just super good at Fortnite. And like, that's why we got, we made him rich. Like it's this, it's this sense of, of like being the outsider, right. Of being like the, you know, yeah, we didn't go to college or like, we didn't go to grad school, but like, we're, we're like with it. We're the, we're the important ones. And that's cool. Like that's a counterculture perspective. And, and, you know, it's been done a million times and it's, it's totally healthy. It's fine. But I think that kind of thing where it's like. You know, old stodgy guy talks to like young hip dude, which I think was probably what they were thinking with having Wolf on. It doesn't work when the old stodgy guy is like a respected Marxist economist. (laughs) Like it, it it like it misunderstands the the adversary there, right? Like you know, you wanna you like get if, if you could get like a conservative, like a dyed-in-the-wool sort of like Mike Huckabee kind of guy on there, you could do the broy thing real well. With Wolf, it's basically destiny saying things like, Uh, you know, like you can't possibly think that companies won't follow the law and Richard Wolf just staidly going, Yes, I I I absolutely believe companies won't follow the law if they're not going to get prosecuted for it, they will uh As long as they're not committing fraud and then, you know, destiny will ask for proof and he'll say, I have 30 years of documented proof. (laughs) And that's just like, it's not funny. It's just like, it's embarrassing because it's like, yeah, man, like you're not going to gotcha. This guy, like he, this is his whole livelihood. He's not going to get mad at you. He's just going to kind of like get frustrated. It's a testament to sort of the trouble of left Twitch and left YouTube is that it's really hard for them to find the, the, Crux of the dynamic they're trying to get at. Whereas, like, conservative stuff, I mean, I disagree with it all, say what you will, as long as it's like very dismissive of it, of course. But, you know, the conservative culture war stuff is bad and, like, you know, transphobic and uh, racist and all the things you want to lay at it. I agree. However, it's also extremely direct. They all have the same basic premise, right? And if you want to know what like H bomber guy or Vouch or destiny thinks about it, you're going to have to watch their shows. Cause like, I couldn't tell you they would think some like particular thing and like have a different spin on it or whatever. And that's fine. I I think, you know, more power to them for being individuals, but it blurs that line. There's no them and us, which for those kind of like debate things, you kind of need a them and us. You need to figure out who the people you disagree with are and like why you disagree with them and why it's important that they are the ones we, to disagree with. I think it's that like, they don't know what the they don't know what the, like the, the stakes of the argument are that's a really easy thing to do in games because it's like you always have to be asking yourself and I am always asking myself and I think like I fail at this just as much as I succeed you know why am I interested in this from a political perspective why is it important that I'm talking about this game as opposed to talking about like upcoming elections and like you always have to be thinking that and always asking the question and you know you may never get to the point where you say like it's more important. But you need to have a reason that it is like a kind of like crucial and seminal thing that you need to be discussing. Something that has a kind of vitality on its own. So, so I guess like where do we go from here then? Mm.
2: Like, what 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 do we have to say for a Twitch debate?
1: Very good question. Um, so, look, I, I said Hassan was like the most interesting guy to me on this, and and I'll I'll explain why, and I'll, I'll give Hassan all the all the respect in the world for this. The format there is like this sort of like shock jockey kind of stuff leading into like very, very substantive political questioning. There's something that the shock jocks of like the nineties were doing. That is kind of interesting. You know, like a lot of them, a lot of them aren't like, no, no one should go listen to man cow unless you want to go like nuts. But there's kind of something interesting that Howard Stern was doing, or like all these people were doing where like they built these personalities out of all of their guests and all the people on the show and everything. And then like, they often just kind of like stuck politics in there. And so like that kind of friction, right. Where you have like a really interesting host and also kind of like a very substantive political point is not being cultivated on Twitch. Because I think the thing that most people miss is that it's not just the host that has to be interesting. The host has to make the guest interesting, right? Like no one, I mean, I won't, you know, no, no, um, no illusions here. I mean, people liked me on, on Hassan's show enough. I got a lot of Twitch subs. So it's great. No one's logging on to Hassan's stream to watch me. They're logging on to watch Hassan. But Hassan has to also make me interesting. Like he can't, you know, dominate the conversation, and it, it becomes like the Hassan show with some, you know, rando in the background. He has to make it seem like okay. This guy knows what he's talking about. He is interesting. I want to listen to him. So you'll want to listen to him. It kind of opens. It's still like, you know, masculine and and jocular and stuff. and, And, you know, like whatever, like that might make people uncomfortable and it might even like not be productive in the end. But the approach, right, like where it's like the two people talking and the guest kind of being made interesting by the host and allowed into the circle by way of like repeated and understood jokes. I think that's how it has to go from here on. Cause like the, the way that like, you know, destiny inviting Richard Wolf on, like, I don't think it worked, but good on him for getting someone on who was like a little different than him. And also a big name, right? Like good on him for sharing the spotlight. Again, I don't, I don't think it worked, but I don't necessarily know that destiny has a ton to say about politics. I know he's a great starcraft streamer streamer and like a wonderful video game streamer, but I, I, I'm not convinced he has a lot to say about politics. I think For the people who do have a lot to say about politics, that's the way to go forward, though. You have to share the stage.
2: That was Trevor Strunk, host of No Cartridge, Marxist dialectical podcast action. If you like left politics, literature, and video games, really, this is the place to go. Find his work wherever you find your podcasts and find Trevor on Twitter at Hegelbahn. Also, next week, Darts has a full bonus episode with Trevor. We discuss his forthcoming book, Story Mode, video games and the interplay between consoles and culture. This book looks at some of my favorite franchises, including Final Fantasy and Metal Gear. So if you want to hear that, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, so maybe you're still wondering, Why exactly is Twitch so popular? How does it work? And most importantly, where is it going? Is this a weird little subculture, or is this like the future of video-based entertainment? Well, I have just the person to help me make sense of all this. T.L. Taylor literally wrote the book on Twitch. It's called Watch Me Play, Twitch and the Rise of Game Live Streaming. This is a political, cultural, technological, and regulatory history of this emerging space. Professor Taylor works at MIT, where she is a sociologist of digital spaces.
4: I didn't grow up with a computer in my home or anything like that, so I really kind of discovered computers and the internet when I got to grad school in the early 90s. And somewhere along the way, I discovered MUDs, which I don't know if you know what those are, text... Old text based virtual worlds, multi user dungeons. And I was blown away. Being in grad school in the 90s, having access to the internet and computers was a pretty amazing time. And these were basically live online multiplayer worlds all in text. And I was just captivated. (laughs) I was absolutely, I had not had any experience with that stuff. I had done BBSs before, but nothing quite like this. And so I just started playing them for my own entertainment.
2: What captivated you?
4: The sense of presence. There were others there in this world we were exploring together. And this is sometimes hard to imagine now because we're in a moment where we have really good graphics cards and, you know, consoles. But this was all text-based. Often you were using a modem, a very slow modem. And yet there was still a feeling of presence and embodiment and a vibrancy with others in real time. It blew me away. And I really just started spending a lot of times in them and then eventually (laughs) transformed it all into a a research project. Moving on to
2: Twitch, I'm curious about the broader kind of social and economic context that gives rise to it. And your, Your book, Watch Me Play, does a really good job situating Twitch in that context. Can you tell me a little bit about that history? I mean, going back to kind of television and the decline of television. Why is that an important part of the story of Twitch?
4: The way I I try to talk about Twitch is I really frame it as an intersection of multiple trajectories. And And I think it's pretty important for folks to understand that Attempts at live streaming have been around for decades. Even back in the '90s, uh, as I was talking about with my early days playing in these muds online, we were all off also experimenting with webcams and a program called See you, See Me that allowed us to sort of share videos of ourselves as well. There was lots of you know educational uses of live streaming. Again, all early experiments. So that's long been a part of what people have been trying to do online. I think what you have is you have all of that stuff that's happening on the internet running up against sensibilities around the televisual and what, what does entertainment look like when it's televisual? What are the kind of tropes that get used? And this broader kind of network culture, the activities of online life. You have all these things kind of mixing together, I think, to really seed this fertile ground for twitch when when eventually in some ways the technology and the infrastructure catches up with what people have been trying to do for decades and you have this kind of growing cultural moment where people are sharing more and more online right so that becomes much more normalized combine that with this kind of passion people have for watching people game and watching people share their play. You kind of put all of these things together and it's a perfect opportunity for something like Twitch to really grow. And I think, you know, that idea that watching people play could be compelling, that's probably the thing that's most surprising to folks. You know, you can see infrastructures growing, you can see material conditions changing, but this idea that people love to watch others play for some is a very surprising idea.
2: It seems like it's not surprising to you.
4: No, (laughs) it's not. Because I think the, the, the pleasures of watching others play, if we think about gaming, you can think about sitting on your sofa with your friends and handing off controllers or watching them play. One of my favorite images that's in the book is of a group of kids gathered around an arcade machine and watching each other play. I think sports, for those who don't play games, sports is another great note to think about the pleasures of watching playing, competition. We do that all the time. So once you actually start thinking about it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not so surprising. What just happens is you suddenly get a platform that can facilitate the stuff people have been doing all along.
2: Yeah, anyone who's been to an arcade shouldn't be that surprise. <laughs> I I have this indelible sort of image in my in my mind of of going visiting an arcade in Tokyo and and there was this one guy who was really good at DDR. And you know, like half dozen, maybe a dozen people just like gathered around to watch him really perform on this machine. And it was like this was I don't know if Twitch existed at the time when I was there, but it, it was obvious to me what a tremendous spectacle this was and how entertaining it was.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the beauties of Twitch and one of the lovely things about that pleasure of watching others play is, you know, there's lots of different reasons people watch others play. You know, that case, the the DDR player, you know, you might have fellow competitors <laughs> standing around kind of, you know, getting ready to go up and, and go next and take on a challenge and then there is also, I think, sometimes just the aesthetic beauty, which we often don't think about with gaming, but the aesthetic beauty of watching others play, watching expertise, watching virtuosity, <laughs> in all kinds of forms, is a really great experience and fandom. So there's lots of reasons people watch, and we could probably even encapsulate them all in that one <laughs> incident you experienced in the arcade. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I don't know what it is. Like, I'm not a big Twitch watcher, but I'm a bit of a TikTok lurker. And I, I have the algorithm rather has taken to thinking that I really enjoy watching people play Call of Duty. (laughs) And I never play Call of Duty. But to be honest with you, I kind of do enjoy watching it. They're so good. And they're so frightening.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're hitting on actually, I think one of the most interesting Developments that we haven't quite reckoned with from a research perspective, or I would say game companies haven't quite reckoned with. So it used to be the proposition for Twitch was really formulated around Twitch was good marketing. So that's why game developers let it happen, right? You're getting your product out there in front of everybody. People will watch the game. They'll be inspired to go buy it. The thing you just described, hmm, maybe I watch and I don't actually play that game. That's the thing that is underthought about and under theorized, under researched. In part, I think it's a little bit poking at the house of sand the entire system is built on. But I certainly have found myself and many others, you know, watching game streams and now feeling like, oh, that was satisfying on its own terms. I don't need to play the game. I don't need to be a fan of that particular game. And that's a really interesting development. What is the house of sand that you're talking about? lurking throughout so many of our cultural practices are IP battles, intellectual property battles. And Twitch is right at the heart of that because it's based on this idea that people are going to broadcast game content and for many of them, then hope to make money off of it in some form. And it's largely been allowed. You know, game developers often protect their IP if you could see all these air quotes, protect their IP really vigorously. But it's been allowed, I think, in large part because it's been seen as a marketing venue. You get your games out in front of lots of audiences and maybe they'll go buy them. Maybe it'll inspire them to do more microtransactions. That's the ground on which it's all built. And I think what's fascinating is we have hints that there need not be... A one-to-one correspondence between what you watch and what you play. That's long been the proposition, right? You, you're you kind of watching because you either play now or you're going to play that game. And this is the thing I think, it's never been empirically true. To me,
2: it just strikes me as demonstrably false. Like When I watch those Call of Duty people, if anything, it discourages me from playing because... I don't want to face that guy. Yeah. In the same way, if I watch football, it does not make me want to pick up a ball and go get like my head bashed in. In fact, just the opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But it may encourage me to buy a hat or buy a ticket. And that's where the esports piece comes in. Is that how you square peg round hole this thing?
4: Yeah, I think you're hitting on a really key point, which is... There is an important heterogeneity in live streaming. It's not just one thing. And there's eSports streaming. And even within eSports streaming, that means everything from big stadium events to an eSports player broadcasting their practice time. And then there's this huge swath of what are often called variety streamers, people people who are crafting, playing different kinds of games. And the models for those probably need to differ. (laughs) We probably need to have a more nuanced understanding of how different parts of that community is gonna make money if that's what they wanna do, the grounds for them to survive and thrive. I've long had an interest in and been concerned by the really strong intellectual property hold game developers tend to exert on users. And so, you know, while the high ticket esports space may be a little protected cuz everybody's going to figure out how to get a cut of the money. I worry about the variety streamers, I worry about the crafters. I worry I worry about all those other folks that are maybe that longer tail as they sometimes say of streaming and more vulnerable.
2: Why do you worry?
4: I worry because there's a history of game companies exerting their power and control over average users who are not just kind of doing really interesting things with their products, but as I argue in the book, are actually creating something new. So one of the arguments I put forward in the book is a notion of transformative play, that many, many streamers are not simply taking the game and just piping out its content wholesale, that they're actually through their engagement, through their performance, transforming. And by transforming, have a stake in it, Perhaps even have some ownership rights. That's long been something I've been interested in in gaming. You know, back in the old MMO days, you would see players who had invested tons of time in an MMO go to eBay to try to sell their character, and game company would come in and say, "Nope, you're not allowed to sell that. It's our property." And I always found that odd. You know, we have to understand play as a co-creative activity doesn't mean game developers don't have stakes and don't have rights, but it probably means that players and users also have stakes and rights.
2: You use the word co-creative, which I think is just the absolute spot-on word to use because there's like a mod culture, but there's also like in the shift to games as service, there's so much work that's done in terms of, hey, this isn't working. Hey, why don't we try this? Or even like in games like, I remember, Little Big Planet, where you're actually just designing levels. So it's like, in a sense, the game studio has outsourced a lot of the labor to a community that isn't remunerated. Has anything shifted in the IP, intellectual sort of governance, in this shift to games as a service model? Are we still operating the exact same framework that we were operating when I was a teenager?
4: So the thing that has changed most, I would say, is game developers have actually, instead of always fighting user production, have figured out how to incorporate it into the formal game itself. You saw that decades ago with World of Warcraft, where they had a modding system where people could add little bits of software to make the game kind of play better or their preferred play. And then Blizzard would look at the ones that got taken up by the community and would integrate it into the formal product. That said. Our larger intellectual property regime only keeps getting more and more entrenched. I mean, there is no walking back from the DMCA at this point. Like, So we live in a moment in which there is tremendous innovation. Companies are very happy to take it up, put it into formal products, leverage the labor of others, but still allow at the deepest level a precarity for all that activity. It's not protected. There's no form of redress. There's no good way a, someone can kind of try to f- push back if they feel their rights, their stakes have been overrun. So it's a strange moment. The smartest of the game developers get that, that co-creation is at the heart, but there's still a legal structure and sometimes a sensibility structure that continues to overweight the developers.
2: I'd like to shift to politics and the politics of Twitch. One of the questions I have about this is like someone who comes purely out of, you know, especially a bro gamer culture. When they move into politics, it's get a zinger. It's very spectacular. It's very like debate club politics. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about that sort of Debate culture and what, what the limits of, of that approach are to kind of like understanding and approaching political questions.
4: I think that's a great way of putting it the debate culture vibe, which exists on all corners of the internet. <laughs> that is, you know, that's just one of those kind of things some folks are drawn to and love watching and love doing. But I will say that for myself, at least, what, what makes me most hopeful is not watching a dude debate somebody. What makes me most hopeful are watching vibrant, diverse, lively communities build together, grow <laughs> when people find their people. <laughs> you know, when you when you find the folks that you suddenly feel welcome by, you feel you share something with. To me, that's the most exciting, hopeful stuff. I mean, it it's always, you know, there have always been these amazing pockets in game culture. Again, I spend a lot of time in my work tackling really awful issues around harassment and exclusion and policing, the kinds of real barriers to participation. At the same time, I'm heartened by intergenerational play. I'm heartened by folks who are building stream communities and supporting each other. So... The internet for me is a big place and you decide what you give your attention and energy. (laughs) (laughs) And I give my attention and energy to those communities who are, I think, trying to build the world that they want.
2: Mm. I think that's a beautiful thing that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I like what you said there. I mean, the games and these communities in a sense are always political. It's not just the spectacular left versus right debate, no. but it's like what political work is being done in and around and about games and, and where does that lead us? I think that's that seems particularly exciting.
4: I think this is one of the most important things we have to understand about gaming because in some ways gaming has benefited, I think, too much and wrongly from being seen as, oh, this fun, air quotes, a political leisure space, when actually the way I put it is gaming is the place where politics comes at you sideways, because politics are woven through the infrastructures, they're woven through the socioeconomic systems, they're woven through forms of community, they are woven through aesthetics and the choices you can or can't make. So if anything, I see gaming as some of the most political That's for me why, you know, the things like a a, a debate, that is certainly one important aspect of politics, but I want us to be having hard conversations about intellectual property. I want us to be having hard conversations about the economic systems that underpin. I want us to be having hard conversations about how race and racism, sexism works Like if you think games are part of culture, then barriers to participating in gaming is a barrier to participating in culture. That is a big ticket issue. One of my biggest frustrations is that platforms and concerns around Facebook and Twitter, these things take up so much oxygen that gaming is sometimes left to sort of sit in the corner and do its own thing and not get enough attention. And it is as vital to be looking at gaming as it is all of these other platforms, all of labor practices we're talking about, because they are all also in gaming.
2: That was T.L. Taylor. She is a sociologist and professor at MIT. Her book on Twitch is called Watch Me Play. You can find a free copy online. We've linked it in the show notes. Plus, give TL a follow on Twitter. Her handle is at YBIKA. Tanya DePass made me rethink what we mean by political Twitch. Tanya is a queer woman of color on a platform that seems dominated by white men. But she's building an inclusive community. In a single day on Twitch during the George Floyd protests, she raised $140,000 for the Bail Project. And Tanya is also trying to change the games themselves. She is founder of the not-for-profit I Need Diverse Games.
5: On Twitch, you can find her at Cypher of Tear. I'm not like a one-game streamer. I I do variety, so some days... I may sit with coffee and do just chatting, check in with the community. Other days I may hop on and do some Sims for actually just built the apartment that I'm moving into so I could kind of visualize it and and place furniture.
2: Oh, and Sims before you moved in?
5: Yeah, so I had the floor plan because it was part of the listing before they took it down. So I actually like made a one level house that was the layout of the apartment I'm moving into. <laughs> That's really
2: cool. I never yeah. thought of that. My mom is an architect. I'll have to tell her about that and see if she can oh use God. that for clients.
5: <laughs> It'd be interesting and she could build it and record it and just kind of show it real time. Yeah.
2: <laughs> how would you characterize the community?
5: <laughs> Laid back, inclusive. You know, we try to we try to make sure everyone's welcome. They can be themselves and people are welcome until they show that they don't know how to act. <laughs> and then they're shown the door. What does that mean? They're usually blocked, kicked out from the Discord, banned on Twitter, Twitch, etc. I have a code of conduct and expectation when you join the Discord. And it's not hard. It's basically like, be a decent person. You know, don't be a racist. Don't be homophobic. Don't be transphobic. You know, basic rules of you should do this anyway as a decent human being. You know, we do get some people that kind of forget about things like socioeconomic privilege when Mm. we have discussions about money or expensive electronics and we just kind of have to gently nudge and go hey this is a thing you need to think about just because you can run out and buy a new macbook the day it releases doesn't mean everyone else can so just be cognizant of those things Mm. but you know i wouldn't kick someone from the community for that it'd be more of a blatant you know mistreatment of other people obviously racism homophobia is an instant out but we also try to have teaching moments when we can but I'm sure you've met people that can't be taught anything. <laughs> yeah.
2: So. Why does someone like that come onto your stream? Are they like purposely agitators?
5: Um. Usually people that come in to purposely agitate or just be jackasses. Mm-hmm. Uh don't last long. <laughs> they usually don't get access to the Discord unless they, unless they hate subscribe, which we haven't seen really. But sometimes people come in and they only want to come in for like one thing. Like if I'm playing Outriders or another FPS game, they only want to play like. They only want to see, like, I only want to see this game and then. Or if you play a game and you bring up things like race or or racism or things like that, it's like, oh, I don't want that. I just want the video games. It's like, well, these things affect us. It affects me as a black queer person in the U.S. who had just survived through four years, of one of the worst administrations I remember living through. And if you don't want to participate in a conversation, that's fine. But you don't get to dictate to the streamer and the others what we do and don't talk about. So sometimes people come in, um, actually, as we're chatting, I had to mute a friend stream so we could chat. But before we got on, I don't know what the context was, but all of a sudden I hear him reading out someone in chat, you know, going against Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, especially law enforcement or including law enforcement. And some streamers might well, just ban them and never mention it. No, he's still having a conversation about this topic and things like that where it's like, If I'm playing a game with police and I feel a way about the police Mm -hmm. and I bring it up, we're going to have that conversation. Now, you cannot participate. You could leave. But sometimes people just come in like during the previous president's run to reelection. We'd have people come in and just spam his name 2020, 2024. And those people like, you know, they just want a reaction. You ban them and you move on. But I don't want people to feel like I'm never going to tackle politics. I'm never going to tackle anything like that, because streaming is part of what I do. It doesn't, I don't get to set aside my blackness, my being, you know, female-bodied, my queerness when I turn on the street.
2: So you said you stream with, with a lot of uh, people of color. Is there a vibrant, like, how many, like, African-Americans are on Twitch? Uh,
5: No idea, because Twitch doesn't get demographic data. Mm. When you sign up, there is no cataloging of demographic data. So... Even if I were to ask Twitch for that, there is no way to find out. Like, I happenstance find other creators of color, other Black creators, because of the communities that we built. Mm. And, like, on Twitter, hey, where's the Black folks who like d d Where are the Black folks who like The Sims or what have you? I just joined a new group, Noir Network, put together by XMiraMira Mira to get Black non-men together and give us a platform and a place to collaborate because... It's not happening directly on Twitch. It's not happening in other spaces. So we're there, but discoverability sucks. So without communities, which used to be a thing, without tags, we don't have a, we don't have a black or POC tag on Twitch. The only tag that's out there is LGBTQIA. And that's cool, but it also gets people harassed. Mm-hmm. And granted, you can opt in using the tag. I can choose whether or not to, to have that on there. But if every time I use it, someone comes in and calls me a homophobic slur, I'm never going to use a tag. And then enough people do that, then you'd be like, well, no one's using this tag. I guess we don't need tags. Oh, well. Mm. So we're there. It's just, it's hard to discover because the white dudes with tens and thousands of concurrent viewers are the ones always at the top of the directory.
2: So it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy thing. The tag doesn't get used because the tag results in people receiving harassment. That's, that's awful.
5: Yeah. And that's kind of the justification right now for not making a transgender tag or trans tag. There's a petition for it and people keep upvoting it on the feedback site for Twitch. You know, we've asked for a black tag. We've asked for a POC tag and you know, other people are now doing the work that I feel Twitch should do, which is peer to peer live. So it's peer, the number two peer dot live. And I can now go, I want to find just other femme identified black women to watch Maybe this is the energy I need today. I can go and sort and find that. But again, it's all opt-in and people need to know about it. So it's like there are tools by third parties and sites. You know, like I'm on an all LGBTQIA stream team. If people don't know we exist or if I don't have that stream team name up when I'm live, how are people going to know that Rainbow Arcade exists or that Noir Network exists?
2: I'm curious what it was like being an African-American streamer during this summer, what was like the political climate like on Twitch?
5: Oh, that's interesting. So I just talked about this earlier today on a panel. It was very performative to a degree. There was a lot of, oh, I finally realized Black people exist on Twitch. <laughs> let me have you on your pot. Let me have you on this podcast. Let me dr- come in and and drop some subs. And I support you in Black Lives Matter. Or you know, let me make sure I'm hosting Black creators then July 1st, all that attention just nosedived. So it was like a fashionable trend. And then it dropped.
2: How much of a bump did you see in terms of, of subs at the time?
5: Oh, I hit the highest sub amount I ever had. I, I hit 2,400 subscribers and now I am nowhere near that total. Like even as of July 1st, I saw I drop off of nearly a thousand subs because they were all gift subs.
2: So they're not actual people. They're just like chipping in.
5: So just so you and your yeah. the listeners understand, you now can gift subscriptions on Twitch. So like if you were streaming or if we were doing the podcast mm-hmm. on Twitch and someone comes in, they like what you do. Maybe they're already a subscriber. You know, they just want to go here. Here's a way to support your channel instead of just directly tipping you maybe. Mm-hmm. You can gift anywhere from one to 100 subs at a time. And so a lot of people coming by going, I feel so bad. I feel so terrible and dropping off anywhere from one to a hundred gift subs, which is great. And your payoff for that month is great. But then they drop after 30 days if people don't keep them up.
2: What do you wish would have happened?
5: I wish there had been real meaningful change. I wish there had been a realization that black creators need ongoing support, not one time shallow performative support. There was a lot more done this year for black history month. Mm-hmm. That kind of energy needs to exist your round
2: You know, given the kind of bro culture we've been talking about, what do you think mm-hmm. is like the future of the political space of Twitch? Where Where is it going to the extent that mm. that one can generalize? What are the big Twitch trends? Is this kind of toxic culture of the future or is Twitch maturing and changing?
5: I don't watch a lot of political streamers because I just find it annoying and trite because... Half the time they're just repeating what Fox News has said. And if I want to <laughs> see that, I'll go watch Fox News. But as for the politics of, of critiquing games, mm-hmm. critiquing games is inherently not a political act. Mm. It is giving critique. It is giving criticism. And if a game tries to say, "Oh, there's no politics here, but it's a war game," or something like that, yes, absolutely call out that agenda because you can't you can't set a game in a war torn country or have war or strife be the central way in which your game functions and then go up, oh, no politics though. You can't <laughs> do that. But the act of reviewing playing games and discussing games while your life is not inherently political. And I say that in the sense of people always want to go take politics out of my games, but people are also very satisfied with sitting there playing games where you spend six, seven, eight, nine hours shooting Brown people who look like me and don't care. And you know, war games, shooting games, things like that—they have an inherent political bent. When I play a game like Mafia Three with the black protagonist, if I play a game like The Division Two and bring up kind of the the ways, the tropes, the groups in this game, that is acknowledging the politicalness of that game. But it's not a political act for me to bring it up. And I've seen where people go, "Oh, you're making, you're putting politics in there. You're putting politics in my games," and I'm like. I didn't put anything in the game. I'm just noting what's there. Yeah. You want to not acknowledge this part of the game, but spend hours a day playing game where you shoot people, where you're solving this crisis in, in a wartime simulation, but still sit there and look people right in the face and go, but the game's not political. <laughs> he or like um, uh, Detroit become human. There's no political story. You literally have Martin... Luther King and Malcolm X quotes in here and a black android standing at the back of the bus. If that's not political, what is?
2: That was Cypher of Tear, also known as Tanya de Pass. You can find her work on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, all of that's on the show page. Plus check out her work with the group I Need Diverse Games. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our assistant producer is Ren Bangert. Mark Apollonio is our managing producer. Our research assistants are Dave Moscrop and Addie Susnick. Theme song is from Mike Barber, and graphic design is from Dakota Coop. As always, I am your host and the editor of the show, Gordon Caddock. Send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Darts and Letters. If you give us a follow or a retweet, we certainly appreciate it. Also, if you're listening on our website and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Search Darts and Letters in any podcast platform you use. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, we're there. And while you're there, you can give us a rating and a review. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are supported by Academic Research Grants, which help us look at the shifting concept of the public intellectual. Professor Alan Sands at the University of British Columbia is our lead academic advisor. This episode was also part of a wider project looking at the emerging politics of video games. That is housed also at UBC and advised by Leonard E. Naki at the University of Waterloo. Finally, we are also supported by our generous patrons. Thanks to our newest, Randall. Why don't you join Randall and join the rest of the club? You can find them at patreon.com forward slash letters. Patrons get content a day early, and sometimes, like this week, they'll get bonus exclusive material. Thanks for listening. Check back next Friday.